Well, how many of y'all are ready for Tuesday to be over? <laughs> well, whether or not your candidate wins, God's still on the throne. And that's what, uh, amen. And that's what God wants us to know today. That's what God wants you to hear today. So let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, as we have just sung with our voices, you are Lord of all. I pray that we would be absolutely, positively, thoroughly convinced of that truth, no matter what. So teach us today, guide us into your truth, Holy Spirit, that we may live it out in our very lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So here's, we're talking about one, one. The truth that I want you to hear today is that there is one true God who is the sovereign ruler over all nations. The Bible says, and this is the prayer of Jehoshaphat, he was the king of Judah in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 and verse 6, as he was facing a numberless horde of people who were coming against their nation. He was asking for God's help, and here's what he prayed. O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? And do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hand is there not power and might, so that no one is able to withstand you? I hope that's what we understand and believe that God rules over the nations. Psalm twenty-two twenty-eight says, For the kingdom is the Lord's, and He rules over the nations. Psalm 47, verse 8, God reigns over the nations, and God sits on His holy throne. Now let me ask you something. Who sits on the throne right now? The throne of the world, the throne of the universe. Who sits on that throne? God. Come Tuesday or Wednesday morning, who's going to sit on the throne? You mean God's still going to be on the throne no matter if your candidate wins or loses? Yes, He will. He's still on the throne. And He reigns over all. I want you to turn or look on the screen to Acts chapter 17 and verse 26. This will be... The verse that we're going to dissect and hopefully digest today. Paul was walking through the city of Athens, Greece. It was well known in that day for being a very intellectual center. High thinking. And Paul walked through the city and he saw all these altars to gods of all kinds. But he saw this one altar and it was titled, To the Unknown God. In case... They had missed one. They had to have an altar to one that they perhaps they missed. And Paul begins to declare to them, says, let me introduce you to this God that you don't know. 
And so he's telling them about God. In verse 24, God made the world and everything in it. He is Lord of heaven and earth. Verse 25, is not worship with men's hands. And then verse 26, and he has made from one blood every nation of men. By the way, we're getting there eventually. We're gonna, that's part of this series one. How many races are there in the world? One. There's one. One race. There's the verse right there. He has made from one blood all the nations of the world. So we'll get there eventually, but not today. He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. That word nation in that verse is the word ethnos in the Greek language that the New Testament was written in, which we get the word ethnicity. Okay? It means a tribe, a people group. Uh, a nation. Some have translated it race, but I don't think that's the most proper translation. More a tribe or a, a group of people who have associated themselves together and speak the same language and have some of the same characteristics. Now, God says he made every nation of men. That's what I want you to see. God is the origin of all nations. Write that down. Mark that down in your mind. God is the origin of all nations. Let's start where we ought to start. The beginning. In the beginning. First verse of the Bible is what? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now we talked about that. We spent a lot of time in the last several weeks talking about God being the creator. Now we come to chapter 3 of Genesis and we see that man has sinned against God. And we see how quickly that sin nature ruined the things that God had intended for man to enjoy. We see that man had to work by the sweat of his brow. No longer did the earth just yield its produce. Now man had to work the soil. And he had to combat the thorns and the thistles. And now, no longer can women just give birth without pain. Now they, they give painful childbirth and and um, then they get expelled from the Garden of Eden. And then the next generation of humans after that, after Adam and Eve, there's, you see the, how the sin nature just exponentially grew. And Cain rises up and kills his brother Abel, the first murder in the Bible. And then in Genesis chapter 5, we see the genealogy from Adam to Noah. How many generations that was. And then when we come to the chapter 6 and we read about the days of Noah... Which, by the way, Jesus had an interesting comment to make in the New Testament about the times when we can know when we're in the latter days or when we can be watching for his return. He said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of his coming. So let's read about what it was like in the days of Noah. Here's verse 5 of chapter 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, if you look at the condition of our world, and yes, even our nation, I would tend to say that that verse characterizes a lot of what we see going on in our world and our nation. All this wickedness, all the violence, all the hatred, all the division, all the immorality. People are calling wrong right and right wrong. I think God's probably like he was in the days of Noah. 
pretty fed up with it. And so in the days of Noah, God said to Noah, I'm going to send a flood. And so Genesis chapter 6 through verse chapter 9, God's warning of the flood. And he tells Noah, build an ark. And Noah begins to build this giant boat and bring all the animals on the boat. And then the rains came down for 40 days and 40 nights. And it says the springs of the earth rise up and flood the whole earth, covering even the highest mountain. And then we come to Genesis chapter 10. After the flood and the waters recede and the ark lands on Mount Ararat and they're able to come off the ark, we get the genealogy of Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Which, by the way, um, everybody here has something in common. Everybody, something in common. Wherever you go all over the face of this earth, if you go to Africa, if you go to China, if you go to Russia, if you go to South America, if you go to Australia, go to any continent, any country, all over the world, everybody you meet, you're going to have two things in common with them. You're going to have two sets of parents in common with them. Noah and his wife and Adam and Eve. From Adam and Eve and from Noah and his wife came all the men, women, boys, and girls on the face of this earth. And so in Genesis chapter 10, verse 1, it says, Now this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now I don't know which one I came from. Do you? You know, there is a man, I, I looked it up on the internet, not this week, but several months ago, maybe even last year. There is a guy uh, living today who has, says, he claims that he has traced his genealogy all the way back to Noah. Maybe he did. Mine's probably not that clear. But he says he did. So, But you can. You, you probably can't. But we all go back to Noah. And then Adam and Eve. Look at verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 5. From these, the coastland peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. And verse 32 says, These were the families of the sons of Noah according to their generations, in their nations. And from these nations were divided on the earth after the flood. So what we see here is the origin of nations. And God has designed this. God started it after the flood. Genesis chapter 11. I don't know if you're familiar with that chapter, but that's the story of the Tower of Babel. Remember, all these men and women there on the face of the earth, they all spoke one language. Maybe they even all kind of looked alike. I don't know. But it says they, they, they didn't want to be scattered over the face of the earth. So they said, hey, let's build this tower and let's build this city and let's let the tower reach to the heavens and let's make a name for ourselves. And, and God said, no, that's, that's not going to happen. And he says that he would come down and destroy that city and scatter them over the face of the earth because that was what God told them in the garden. He said, I want you to go and fill the earth. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the whole world. And now man's rebelling against God say, no, let's all stay in one place. So he comes down and he confuses their language. Verse 8. So the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth and they ceased building the city. Therefore is the name called Babel because the Lord confused their language of all the earth. And from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. So now we have the origin of a scattered and diverse nations. People who speak different languages and who now are going to gather in groups of people that they understand the same language. So we have the origin of diverse nations. Then in Genesis chapter 12, we see the origin of a specific nation. Now the Lord said to Abram, 
Get out of your country from your family, from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So now we see the forming of a specific nation, the nation of Israel. God plucks Abraham out of a pagan nation, Ur of the Chaldees. Ur was the city. Chaldea was the nation. Plucked him out, which was, by the way, Babylon. Plucked him out of that nation, a pagan nation that didn't worship God, and said, Abram, you're going to follow me. And from you, I'm going to build a great nation. And from that nation, I'm going to bless the whole world. And then in Genesis chapter 17, we see the origin of many other nations of the world that would come. In chapter 17, God tells to Abram, he says, No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations, plural. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. So now we see the origin of many different nations, not just one specific nation. So what we're seeing here, what I just traced out for you in the opening chapters of the Bible, is that God is the origin of all nations. It was His plan. Now, if you're not yet convinced, let's uh, go back to Acts chapter 17, verse 26. And I want to show you, again, from the Scriptures, what God has to say about Him being over the nations. Verse 26, Acts 17, He has made from one blood every nation of men. You could put a period there and that would be enough. You have to believe it or you don't believe it. He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. So here's the next thing I want you to understand. Not only does God rule over the nations, He's the originator of nations and he's pre- He has predetermined Every nation's rise and fall. Did you know that July the 4th, 1776, didn't take God by surprise? You know, I probably think it, it, it probably took our forefathers by surprise. I think they fought tooth and nail, as we know by history, fighting for our independence from England. The English army far exceeded in expertise and weaponry, and even skill as soldiers. And there should have been no reason that they were, would have been victorious. But yet a group of rabble, if you will, who just had a determined passion for freedom and independence, God had His hand upon. Because He knew that America needed to be a nation. God founded this country. July the 4th, 1776. But you know what else? He knows when it's going to cease to be. And by the way, every nation was started by God. Russia. China. Those that we consider the bad people, North Korea. Cuba. Cuba. Venezuela. All these countries that, that we think we're, we're at odds with, those are nations that God started. Now, it's going to be interesting to see this on this journey this morning because God says, I, the Bible says, He pre-appointed their times 
That is their rise and their fall. Acts Job 12, 23, the first part of that verse says, He makes nations great and destroys them. Now, look at Daniel chapter 1. We're going to walk through Daniel in the next couple of weeks um, because Daniel's a very interesting book when it comes to this subject of God being sovereign and over all nations. Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 is very interesting as it um, introduces, if you will, or supports or confirms what we're talking about here. So look at verse 1, Daniel 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came into Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Look at back verse 1. Now, Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Who's Judah? Okay. Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, and what were their names? <laughs> okay, Jacob had 12 sons. So the 12 uh, sons of Jacob become the 12 tribes of Israel, and one of those tribes' name was Judah. Judah was in the southern kingdom, and then, of course, you know, the kingdom split apart uh, after the reign of Solomon and uh, the, became the northern kingdom. And then the southern kingdom. Judah was the southern kingdom. Now here's Jehoiakim. He's the king of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. And now God says to Daniel here, he says, Hey, Daniel, here's something you need to know. I am sending a pagan king. Uh, and of course, this already happened in Daniel's lifetime. Daniel's just recounting it. Daniel was one of the victims, if you would. And so this pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, is being sent against Judah, God's chosen people that he started back there with Abraham. Why? Because God's chosen people rebelled against him and committed idolatry and immorality. And so now, here's what verse 2 says. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Jeremiah 27 confirms this as well. Listen to what it says. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the word of, came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Thus says the Lord to me, Make for yourselves bonds and yokes and put them on your neck. And send them to the king of Edom, the king of Moab, the king of the Ammonites, the king of Tyre, and the king of Sidon by the hand of the messengers who come to Jerusalem, to Zedekiah, king of Judah. And command them to say to their masters, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Thus you shall say to your masters, I have made the earth. Speaking about God the man and the beast that are on the ground by my great power and by my outstretched arm and have given it to whom it seemed proper to me. And listen to this verse. This doesn't blow your socks off. Nothing will. And now, this is God speaking. Talking about this pagan Nebuchadnezzar. I have given all these lands. What lands? Well, he's already talk, he already mentioned Judah. Now he's saying Edom, Moab, Ammon, Tyre, Sidon. He says, I've given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. What does he call him? My servant. I'm reading right out of the Bible. I'm giving them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. He calls a pagan king his servant. That should have blown your socks off. Y'all still got socks on. Does that not blow your mind that, that God can use a wicked pagan 
king to accomplish his purposes? Yes, it makes perfect sense if you believe that God is sovereign and he rules over all nations. Daniel chapter 2. Go back to Daniel. Verse 1. Now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. And his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. So now Daniel's having dreams. And he has this dream that has a very meaningful and powerful dream. I wonder where that dream came from. Does anybody want to take a guess if you know the story of Daniel? Where did that dream come from? It came from God. And Daniel, I mean, Nebuchadnezzar was so troubled by this dream that he called for all of the soothsayers and the fortune tellers and all the, the magicians. And he said, hey, guys, you got a, two jobs here. Number one, tell me what I dreamed. Number two, tell me what it means. And they said, well, wait a minute, there's no way we can tell you what you dreamed, but if you tell us what you dreamed, perhaps we can figure it out what it means. Nebuchadnezzar said, no, unless you can tell me what it means, then I know you can't tell me. I mean, unless you tell me what I dreamed, I know you can't tell me what it means. And they said to him in verse 11, chapter 2, it's a difficult thing that the king requests, and there's no other who can tell it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with men. Even they... Recognize only God had the answer. But then Daniel went to his house, verse 17, and he made the decision known to his three friends called Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. You may better know him as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they prayed, and, and God revealed it to Daniel what the meaning, what the dream was, and what the meaning was. And here's what Daniel answered to the Lord. Verse 20 Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and foreknowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what's in the darkness and light dwells with him. Now look at, if you would, at verse 23. I'm sorry, not verse 23. Look at verse 31. Now Daniel's going to give the dream. Here's the dream. Y'all remember? The dream was about a statue. And it had a head of gold, okay? And by the way, Daniel says, uh, this image, uh, you, O king, this is what you saw. This image's head was of fine gold, verse 32. Its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron, partly of clay. Now, let's go back and let's try to identify... Um, well, well, we'll talk about that more in just a moment. Then you watch while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. Interesting. Such a great nation. We're going to see no trace of it found. Could it ever happen to our country? You wouldn't think so, but we'll see. So Daniel says, verse 36, that's what you dreamed. Now only God knew that. Nebuchadnezzar said, yeah, that's what I dreamed. Now Daniel says, well, let me tell you what it means. And that's what really troubled Nebuchadnezzar, what it meant. He said, you, O king, verse 37 and 38, you're the head of gold. He said, God has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. 
Who made Nebuchadnezzar the head of gold? Who made Nebuchadnezzar the ruler of the world then? Who did? What did the Bible say? God did. It doesn't make sense, does it? Why would God put a pagan, wicked ruler over the whole world? I don't click with me. I wouldn't have done it that way. That's a good thing I ain't God. Verse 39. He's the head of gold. But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours. Just as silver is inferior to gold, it says a second kingdom will come that's inferior to yours. Now, let's go. And then let me keep reading, then we'll do the history lesson. Then another third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over the earth. Then the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron. Inasmuch iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything, and like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. So let's do this history. What Daniel, what God has outlined for us in Daniel chapter 2 covers 2,500 years of known, documented human history before it ever took place. So the head of gold... Babylon, most powerful kingdom in the world at that time. And reading, we read that Nebuchadnezzar had a son. And so it's Nebuchadnezzar, his son, his grandson. We're going to see his grandson in just a moment. And then another kingdom came, but it had two arms. It was chest and arms of silver, inferior. Does anybody know which kingdom overthrew the Babylonian kingdom? The Medes and the Persians. The Medes and the Persians, two divided kingdoms. And then another third kingdom came, inferior to that kingdom, made of bronze. And it was the kingdom of Greece. And then a fourth kingdom came, part of iron, part of clay, and crushed everything in its path and conquered the world, known as the kingdom of Rome. Human history outlined before day of it ever came to be right here. Who did all that? God did. And it was that wicked kingdom of Rome that was in charge of the world when our Savior was born. It was that wicked kingdom of Rome that was in charge when the church was birthed and thrived. It was that wicked kingdom of Rome that paved and ma made and paved many roads throughout the world by which the gospel of Jesus Christ traveled all over the world. And people were saved everywhere. My friends, if you study human history, you'll see that God doesn't need a saved person in charge to accomplish His work. Although that's what we want. In Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar is remembering how God had to humble him. Nebuchadnezzar got cocky and arrogant. And he thought, he looked out over things and said, you know, look at this beautiful kingdom that I've built for myself. And, and God had prophesied through Daniel, said, there's coming a day, king, real soon, that you're going to be driven from your kingdom for seven years. You're gonna, your hair is going to grow long on your back. And, and you're going to go out and your nails are going to grow long like claws. And you're going to go out on all fours into the field and graze like a cow. And the dew and the rain is going to fall on your back. And you're going to lose your mind. You're going to have the mind of a beast for seven years. Until, here's what he says. And Nebuchadnezzar is recounting this in verse 25 of chapter 4. 
He says, until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. And inasmuch as they gave the command to leave the stump and roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be assured to you after you come to know that heaven rules. And then he says in, chapter, in the same chapter, verse 34, he said, At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. My understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honor him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? It's in Daniel chapter 5, the next chapter, that we meet Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. And by the way, Jeremiah had already prophesied that Nebuchadnezzar would only have himself and two others to succeed him before his kingdom came to an end. So his grandson's throwing a feast one day. His name is Belshazzar. And he's throwing a feast. Now you remember from... Uh, back there in Daniel chapter uh, 1, that Nebuchadnezzar brought, had destroyed the temple of God in Jerusalem and brought all these articles of gold that they used in worship at the temple to the temple of his God. Well, now his grandson Belshazzar is using those articles of gold to throw this party, and they're drinking wine and, and making merry and having this, this large feast, and many people are, are present. And they're mocking God, our God, and worshiping their false gods. Now all of a sudden, something happened that freaked Belshazzar completely out of... He saw a hand with a finger writing on the wall. And the Bible says he, he just became completely white, pale, scared to death. Now you just imagine, you're sitting at a party. Some of y'all were at parties last night. Suppose that you just saw, start seeing a hand writing on the wall. Think you'd freak out? Well, here's what, they wrote, what he wrote. Mene, mene, tekel, you farson. Now, that doesn't have much meaning for us until Daniel chapter 5 is interpreted. Mene means God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Remember what we started off with in Acts chapter 17, verse 6. God has appointed the times of every nation. So what God is saying to Belshazzar is, hey, dude, your time is up. You're gone. Your kingdom's been numbered and it's over. And then he says, tekel means you've been weighed in the balance and found wanting. Listen, God may establish a Belshazzar or a Nebuchadnezzar, but don't forget this truth. God is the judge. He will weigh them out one day and they will pay for how they led their people. That's not our job. Well, I want it to be. <laughs> I want it to be, but it's not my job. And then he says in verse 28, Perez, an interpretation of, are you, are you farson? Your kingdom's been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And verse 30 says, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at about 62 years old. See, all that was the work of God. And it was foreshadowed by that dream Nebuchadnezzar had. Now, I'm going to pass over this next part rather quickly, but I want you to go back to Acts chapter 17, verse 26, and see God made from one blood every nation. God's made every nation. He rules over them. He's determined their pre-appointed times, and the last phrase says, and the boundaries of their dwellings. 
Now, this is the part I'm going to fast forward through because of the sake of time. But God has established the borders. Not only did he establish the nations, he established their borders. Now, we could go through, and I had all this listed out, but we're not going to take the time to do it. But you could go to Exodus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, Joshua. You could look through much of the Old Testament and see how God laid out the borders for Israel and even for the other nations. He told them exactly what their borders are going to be. He said, don't, don't get greedy. This is your borders. That's it. Do you know that July the uh, 4th, 1776, God knew what our borders would be before they really came to be? You know, in 1776, we didn't have this great, huge landmass that we have now. We acquired that over time, including Alaska and Hawaii. But God knew all that ahead of time. Now, you just imagine, when you think United States of America, don't you picture a map of the United States? I do. Say USA, I think, this map. You know, it starts way up here, up there in the Yankee country, way up there. Where's that, Maine? Way up there. And, and they're almost to the North Pole. I don't know. They're way up there. And it, it comes down, you know, and then it comes across. And there you have the Great Lakes and, and Michigan and all that. And then you come over here and it hits Washington. And then it, it comes down the West Coast to that other country over there, uh, other state over there called, called California. And then, then it comes down, and, and then Texas just kind of sticks out its, its leg out there and juts down here a little bit, and then comes back up. And then Louisiana has to put its boot and foot out there and, and wiggle out in the Gulf. And, and then all of a sudden, here comes Florida. I don't know what happened to Florida, but boom, it's, it's, it, it drops to the tropics and then right back up the East Coast to Georgia and South Carolina and, and on up. See, I picture a map with all these borders. Who established that? Acts 17, 26 said, God did. You ever thought about that? God's over the nations and he's over their borders. And it's good to have borders. It's good to have borders. Now, here's the last thing I want you to see. Probably the most important. Acts 17, 27. Let me back up to verse 26 and read it in context. And God has made from one blood... Every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. So that. You know what the word so that means? Whenever you see so that, it means there's a purpose for that. Why did God create the nations? Why did he establish their boundaries and their pre-appointed times? There's a purpose. So that they should seek the Lord. In hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. You know what God's purpose is for every nation? To know him. The Bible says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Are we one nation under God? We were started by God. God desires for every nation to know Him, to seek Him, and to find Him. Though He's not far, He's not hard to find, in other words, but He, wants, he will reveal Himself to the people who seek Him. You see, God made a promise way back. We didn't make it this far in Genesis earlier this morning. But when we come to chapter 18, remember He told Abraham, I'll bless those that bless you, curse those that curse you. I'll make of you a great nation, and I'll make of you many nations. 
Here's what he said in verse 18 of chapter 18. Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. And then he says in chapter 22, verse 18, to Abraham specifically, he says, Abraham, in your seed. When somebody says, in your seed, he's talking about coming from you. Abraham, coming from you, your offspring, somewhere down the line, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And then we read in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 8. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Now let me just put this in perspective for just a moment with the Holy Spirit's help. Justify. That's a big word. What does it mean? It just means that he makes people right with him. He takes away your sin. He makes you right with him. That's what it means to be justified. I've been justified. By the way, that's a past tense uh, event for a, a Christian. I've been, just, I've been made right with God. Sanctified means I'm becoming more. I've, I'm not, I haven't arrived. I'm not perfect. But God's working on me. Helping me to become more like Him. And glorified is when I die and go to be in heaven with Him. But justified means I've been declared and made right with God because of my faith. For seeing that God would justify the Gentiles. Who's a Gentile? A Gentile is anybody who's not a Jew. Now, as far as I know, we only got one Jew here this morning. Jim Maxheimer. Anybody else a Jew in here? We have some Jewish descent over here. Anybody else? Praise the Lord. These are, these are some chosen of God's people. If you're not a Jew, guess what you is? A Gentile. That's what I am, a Gentile. In other words, God is saying that not only Jewish people can be saved, but now this was a revolutionary concept in the New Testament day, especially to the Jewish people, that now non-Jewish people can be saved. How? By faith. And so it says, Paul says to this church at Galatia, he said, seeing that the Scripture, seeing that God would save the Gentiles by faith, he preached the gospel way back there to Abraham. When he told Abraham, in your seed, all nations will be blessed. So how do all people of any nation be blessed? How can they be blessed? By believing in Abraham's seed. Who is Abraham's seed? If you look at the genealogy in Matthew 1 and in Luke, you'll see that from one of them, Starts at Adam and goes all the way to Jesus. One starts at Abraham and goes all the way to Jesus. But Jesus can be traced right back up to Adam, to Abraham. So what God is saying is, Abraham, there's coming one of your descendants who's going to save the whole world. All nations will be saved, blessed, or be blessed through him. Now, how do all nations, or how do people get saved? They have to respond by faith. Did you know that, that all nations will be represented in heaven? John, the, the apostle John, had a, re, had a re, revelation of Jesus Christ. And he was told to, wrote it, to write it down. I'm having trouble with my grammar here. He was told to write it down. And he wrote the book of Revelation. Penned it as it was revealed to him. 
And one of the things he saw in chapter 7, he says he looked and around the throne. Now there's around God's throne, all these heavenly beings. But he said, around the throne were people. He said, I noticed something about those people. They were from all over the earth. Every tribe, every language, every people group, all over the world. People were from all over the world. You know that there are people going to be saved from all over the world? That the gospel, in fact, that's why he says in Matthew 24, 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. In other words, before the end of time comes, the gospel has to go all over the world to all the nations. So everybody has a chance to hear, and there will be people from all over the world who will be saved and who will be standing around the throne because God's heart is for the nations of men and women, boys and girls, to know him. And that's why he commissioned us as the church in Matthew chapter 28. He says, go, you as the people of God, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we see that God is the origin of all nations. He's predetermined their times, their rise and their fall. He's predetermined their boundaries. Why? So that all may know him. Will all know him? No, sadly. Some will reject him. And they'll miss the blessing. The blessing of Abraham. They'll miss out on eternal life. That's why we have to have faith. That is our responsibility. God has done his work. God has orchestrated this whole world from beginning to now. So that you might know him. And have an opportunity to search for him. And find him, though he's not very far. He's us just on the other side of faith. You must believe. Now, if you take this principle that I'm sharing with you today, the sovereignty of God, and if you believe it, there's a danger here. There's a danger that you think that it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter who you vote for. Or it doesn't matter how you live your life. Because, hey, God is sovereign. God's going to do what God's going to do. Apart from me, what difference do I make? Well, I always have a question about prayer. Does God tell us to pray? Yeah. Does God say he answers prayer? Yes. Why does he answer prayer? Why, does he, why do I pray if God's sovereign? Well, for some way, in some way, God operates. He accomplishes his, his will through the prayers of his people. Figure that one out. I don't know. But he chooses to do it that way. Again, I wouldn't do it that way. I wouldn't, I wouldn't trust a bunch of ruined sinners like myself to accomplish I'd just do what I wanted to do. Aren't you like that too? So don't sit here and think, well, if God's in charge, then it doesn't matter what I do or who I vote for or even if I do vote. And then there's other people who think, well, I don't really believe the guy. It's, it's all on me. It's all this responsibility is on me. I've got to carry the weight of the world. And, and I've got to make sure that, that I'm living right and doing right because I've, I've, I've lived so bad for so long. that I've got to earn my right back into the good graces of God. Like it, It's all on them. It's all their responsibility to do the right. Oh, I've got to make sure I've got to vote and, and I've got to politic and, and, I've got to, and I've got to do all these speeches and, and I've got to make sure that my candidate gets in office and, and all the responsibilities on you. And both of those things are you drive yourself crazy. You'll fall. 
I'm going to use an illustration, but I'm going to make it my own, but I'm going to give credit to who the idea came from. A guest lecturer at the Calvin Seminary, named after John Calvin, by the way, his name was R.B. Cooper, K-U-I-P-E-R. And this was the illustration he used, and I'm just going to make it my own. This is a tall ceiling. It's got some heavy beams up here, but let's just imagine that right out there is a pulley. Y'all know what a pulley is, right? It's got a bracket, and it's got a wheel, and that wheel is free spinning. Okay, so I'm going to hang a rope over that pulley. That rope's going to go all the way down right here. And so uh, I'm, I'm going to be brave, and I want to get out there to, to my family. And I'm going to run off this podium, and I'm going to grab on to that rope. Now, what do I have to do to make sure that I don't fall when I run and jump? I got to grab both ropes, right? What if I just grabbed one rope? I'd bust Dustin and Sarah and Maria. I'd probably bust all. I'd bust a bunch, bunch of things up out there. What if I just grabbed the right rope or the left rope? Wouldn't matter, would it? I'm falling. I've got to run and jump, and supposing that I could hold up my own body weight, I got to grab both ropes, right? Rope number one is the sovereignty of God. He's in charge. Rope, same rope, by the way. It's not two ropes. It's the same rope. (laughs) Right? But the left side of the rope is called human responsibility. Just because God's in charge does not release me of my responsibility. Here's how it works out in salvation. You see, because there are some who think it doesn't matter. God's already decided who's going to be saved and who's not going to be saved, and it doesn't matter what I do. Oh, yes, it does matter what you do. Because the Bible says in Ephesians 2.8, For by grace, that's God's sovereignty, through faith, that's my responsibility, are we saved. If you don't have your hand on both sides of that rope, you're going down. Same is true when it comes to living your life, doing life. Oh, God's going to take care of my needs. I don't have to go to work. The Bible says if you don't work, you should eat. So yeah, God's going to, he's promised to give me my daily bread, my daily food. That's his sovereignty. But his also said, I must work. That's your responsibility. Well, if, if God has chooses wicked kings and accomplishes his will through wicked kings, why do I need to vote? One side says, I believe in God's sovereignty, but there is human responsibility. You must vote. That is your God-given responsibility. And then if your candidate doesn't win, you trust the sovereignty of God. He rules over the nations. And he can even appoint wicked men to accomplish his holy purposes. Amen? God rules over the nations. He rules over America. He rules over China. He rules over North Korea. He rules over Russia. He rules over every nation in the world. It may not look like it now, but one day, the Bible says at the last trumpet, we're going to be taken out of here. The church will be. And then the great tribulation. But at the end of that seven-year tribulation, Jesus Christ is stepping out of heaven. It says he'll be coming on a white horse. And it says, then the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever. I want to be on that side. Don't you? 
Let's pray together.